Okay, here we go then. Passing the baton, series two, and this is number 31. And the title of this one is Emotions Who Needs Them, and it's the 28th of November 2009. So let's have a little prayer before we start. Father, thank you that you are our strong confidence. Father, thank you that everything you do is to conform us to the image of Jesus. Thank you, Father, you won't rest yourself until you bring many sons to glory. Father, thank you it's your declared intent that we should bear the likeness of Jesus. Father, I ask that we will make it easy for your Holy Spirit to come this day. I ask that we will make it easy for him to work that transformation, confirmation process into us as we relax and yield to your Holy Spirit's work in us. As we hear the word of power to us today from your throne, Father, that it will meet and hit the spot for each individual person who hears it, that your life will come through, Father, and your transforming grace will be applied to our hearts. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Before we go any further, I need to say something about idolatry. God's problem with Israel was always that they wanted someone other than himself. They wanted a king. So I need to say to everyone that you must remember he is your king. Please do not look to me or anyone else. Do not look to speakers, visiting speakers or people who seem to carry a huge anointing. Do not look to them, beloved. Your relationship should be solely with Jesus, not looking to the left or the right. This has been brought forcibly home to me in recent weeks when for the third time I heard the same message and this time it was Chris Larkin saying of Graham Cook he isn't God and you must not make him one. So strange as it may seem I sense that I need to make that clear to some of those of you listening. Don't look to me. I am a mouthpiece, not a replacement for Jesus. Don't put me on any kind of pedestal or the Lord will have to tip me off. I've had that before and I do not like it. I do not desire it. What I desire is to do what he's called me to do to a degree of excellence. That is all. So eyes on the king, please. So that said, I want to start with something I received last weekend from the website of Francis Frangipani. What he has to say to you is what I have to say. And he started with the scripture in Isaiah 2 verse 11. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And he says this. Normally my Sunday sermon is prepared a few days in advance. But this week was different. All the week the heavens seemed like bronze. Saturday morning came and I was still at a loss. Nothing seemed alive. Now it was Saturday evening and I was pacing the floor seeking God. Lord, I asked, what's the message for tomorrow morning? What topic should I address? A dozen ideas filed through my mind, 
loitered momentarily in my imagination and left, as unanointed as they'd arrived. I went to bed praying. When I woke Sunday morning, my prayer was still on my lips. Half an hour before I had to leave for church, I hadn't quit pacing the bedroom floor. For the umpteenth time, I asked, Lord, what's the message? Then suddenly the electricity to our home clicked off, reset, then came back on. This in turn caused the answering machine on my desk also to reset. Perfectly synchronised with my prayer asking for a sermon topic, the machine replied in its computerised voice, You have one message. When a voice comes out the air and says, You have one message. If your message is not centred on the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've missed the purpose of Christianity. That morning I preached Jesus. People said there was more fire than ever in my sermon. The fact is the church has only one message. The proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished is the eternal message of the church. It's the only message the Father promises to confirm with power. To reveal Jesus through obedience to what he taught is to bring the life of his kingdom into our world. As we return to the simple purity of devotion to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.3, we will find the most powerful manifestations of the Lord Jesus awaiting us. Indeed, at the end of the age, the church that loves him will display him. We will reveal his glory. The answer, more of Christ. When we consider that America is plagued with abortion, violence, pornography, Satanism, drugs, national debt, sexual abuse and the breakdown of the family structure, it becomes obvious we need more of the nature of Christ. Indeed, how shall we deal with the terrors that have invaded our world? Should we move to Idaho, stockpile food and wait for the tribulation? Perhaps we should simply close our eyes to the world and hope for the rapture. Or should we find out what God is planning to do and throw our lives into his purpose? My prayer is that God will give you a vision of what he's planning to do before Jesus comes for his elect. The time is at hand when the works that Jesus did we shall do also and even greater works. John 14:12. What is coming on the earth is the day of God's power. Psalm 1103. Beloved, think about it. Great opportunities are set before those who seek conformity to Christ's image in this day. It is a time to simplify our lives and focus on our transformation. We truly have one message. I have to echo that. I have one message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One of the things I was saying to the Lord when I prepared this teaching is that I seem to be saying the same thing in different ways all the time. Then I read what Francis Frangipan had to say and realised why. I have only one message, transformation into his likeness. So I say again, eyes off of me and on to him please. We're going to begin to take ground in the spirit. 
We're going to begin to put our foot on mountains of difficulty, low self-esteem and rejection. And those rejection reactions and behaviours, we're going to stop them. We're going to go into our promised land, the land of our inheritance. But first, we must understand the part our emotions play in all of this, or we will miss the way. We need to learn how to have the rule over ourselves and over our emotions, in order that we live from a higher place. We really do get to choose, beloved, whether we will be turkeys or eagles. Turkeys, like chickens, scratch about on the ground making a lot of noise. Eagles, on the other hand, soar silently in the heavenly places, spiralling higher and higher towards the sun. I have a fire in me that will not be quenched to see you all coming up higher and continually making progress in the spirit, not being defeated by situations, circumstances and people, but pressing on. This will mean making decisions that define us, that classify us, put us into a different category than the one we are in right now. God himself is incredibly excited about giving you the next part of your inheritance. He always wants to take you up to a much higher place than you currently occupy. He has the most amazing dream for your life. We've dwelt long enough on the lowlands, pondered at the pools of mediocrity and self-pity. Beloved, it's time, time to rise up into everything God has for us to make those decisions that define who we are, to come into alignment with God's purposes, destiny and identity for us, to march purposefully into our future, into the high place of destiny and inheritance He is enthusiastically holding out to us. Beloved, He wants us to have this. The only thing holding you back is you. As Graham would say, get over your silly self. There is a high place in the affections of God we need to reach for and to grasp. A high place is where heaven touches earth. It is the place of unfolding vision and exaltation where we may experience the greatness of God's unique presence. A high place denotes an upgrade a declared place from which to experience life in God from a new place of intimate connection. Everything changes at altitude. This is about being exposed to the elements of heaven so we are no longer subject to a lower order of perception. That's the introduction to a talk by Graham Cook entitled Living on a Higher Place. But before we can entertain living on that higher place, we need to get rid of any baggage we're carrying which would prove unhelpful to our journey. We can't carry that and ourselves where we're going. Something has got to go in order that we may enter in. Many years ago, a friend of ours had a picture of an escalator and a woman standing at the bottom of it. She was loaded up with baggage. She had suitcases in both hands and backpacks and goodness knows what but the escalator was narrow if she was to go up there was no room 
for what she was carrying. And she stood at the bottom, debating whether she could let go of all this clobber, all this stuff. The woman was her. Whether she ever let go of the stuff, I don't know. All I do remember is the picture. So you may have to let go of some stuff because if you're going to go up to a higher place you need to be unencumbered. So that's the first thing for you to think about. And now I'm going to ask you a question. What is your current life message? To determine what it is, examine what emotion you most frequently live in. Love, joy, peace, happiness, satisfaction, contentment or something else. Are you rather more, I'll be glad when this is over, which is actually representing a postponement of your joy, your contentment, your peace, your happiness? What is it that you carry into a room? What do people see and pick up when you come in and begin to speak? What's coming out of your heart? Out of the overflow the mouth speaks. What change do you make in the atmosphere? Are you a negative or a positive influence? What spirit are you living from? Your human spirit or the Holy Spirit? Do you edify or pull down? Do people like to be around you because they are established in something positive when you're around? Do they gain in confidence and faith when you walk into the room because you bring it with you? Or do you bring depression, anxiety, fear and negativity in with you, making people want to escape? Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? A thermometer registers the temperature, a thermostat keeps it even. You're getting the message, aren't you? That a life message is more than passion and it is different from a dream or a vision. So don't go there. This is not about what you may have envisioned. This is about where you live, the real you as you currently experience it. It's not the face you would like people to see but who you really are. You really, really are. And it's who you reveal when you open your mouth. A life message resonates from the core of your being, from your heart. And it's often easier for others to identify and articulate than it is for ourselves. So I say again, do you bring love, joy and peace into your surroundings? Or do you bring depression, anxiety, fear, negativity and low self-esteem? Are you apologising for who you are and does that apology affect the airspace around you? The devil is the prince of the power of the air. Are you making an ally of him or the Holy Spirit? Every time you agree with a negative you are joining the opposing forces. I'm going to say that again. Every time you agree with a negative, you are joining the opposing forces. 
Every time you agree with a positive, you're aligning yourself with God. So do others experience a rise in confidence when you walk into the room? Or does their faith level plummet because what you are carrying diminishes not only yourself but others? Does your calm affect others? Do you radiate peace and tranquility? Does your spirit give off something that is edifying? Or do you carry a predisposition to downgrade everything in your life, including yourself and others? Do bitterness and anger enter when you come in? Do resentment and rejection march alongside you? Or are you flanked with wisdom, understanding and knowledge? Would you say that you are optimistic or pessimistic? Is the glass half full or is it half empty? Are you overly concerned with how people see you? Do you work hard to please people to gain their approval and are you unhappy without that approval? Do you work as hard to please the Father? There's a question. The lack of realisation of your own true identity minimises the identity and destiny God has for you. You'll stay a turkey because it will lead to pleasing people and consequent feelings of rejection and low self-worth if you perceive they aren't pleased with you. God is extending an invitation to you to go on a journey to discover and explore your own true life message, to step into your truest identity, to give that identity a language that empowers it and releases an influence into the world and the atmosphere around you which is transforming. The Holy Spirit wants to upgrade your image of yourself and who you really, really are. You can't travel to where you're going with a false impression of who you are and concern about how others see you. You cannot stay in a place of pleasing people and please God at the same time. Something, beloved, has got to give. So just take a few moments now to be honest with yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what enters when you enter the room and you will have found your current life message. And you'll see whether you're living in your emotions or your spirit man, your natural man or approaching your truest identity. Ask him to show you if you are a people pleaser rather than a father pleaser whether or not you need to make some decisions that will define you this day. So just take a few moments to do that little task. So victory in our lives is not possible until we learn to live beyond our feelings. You could say that our emotions are our number one enemy. They're unreliable, fickle, Joyce Mayer calls them, likely to change, especially in affections, intentions, loyalties or preferences, and our flesh is simply flimsy. It's weak. Matthew 26.41 and Mark 14.38 in the NIV both say the same thing. The spirit is willing, 
but the body is weak. So there has to be a division somehow between the body and the soul and the spirit because the flesh is flimsy and the soul is fickle. In our natural selves we have preferences. We show favour to those we accept because what we see in people influences how we feel about them. If we don't like what we see we withhold from them or reject them. God does, isn't like that doesn't matter whether you're nice or nasty he's made the decision to love you even if you don't have any plans to change this agape love of God is the exercise of the divine will in a deliberate choice he chooses to love us through no merit of our own however we love by discrimination and feelings Beloved, we need a paradigm shift in the way we see and perceive each other. The way we currently see each other can lead to unforgiveness, jealousy, envy, offence, rejection, criticism, hardness, to name just a few. So here's another question. Do you serve God or do you serve your feelings? When you ask for forgiveness, do you feel forgiven or not? Do you believe that you have received and move on? Do you believe your feelings of not being forgiven or what the Bible says? Do you forgive yourself? Mm -hmm. We let the enemy in through unbelief or wrong belief and both are equally powerful. Some people never enjoy the love of God because they don't feel like God loves them, usually because they feel bad about themselves. I need to believe what God's Word says rather than what my feelings tell me and I need to say what I believe, not what I feel. This is why confession, which is agreement with God, is so very important. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that's the way it goes, always. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. It's a continuous process, not a once for all event. The day you were saved, you started into a journey into the fullness of God's redemption. We're not there yet. He is redemptive all the time. You are not made instantly perfect or mature. It takes time. And that's the journey that we're on, beloved. We're like a cheese or a good wine. We take time to mature. The Bible tells us we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the power of God. If you still believe and do the same things you believed and did a year ago, I have to tell you you're backslidden. God's a God of the now, not yesterday. He's constantly moving us into something better than we currently are and experience than we currently are and experience and we are moving into our truest identity, or at least we should be. I'm not suggesting that you throw out your good beliefs. What I am suggesting is that those beliefs should be built upon.
they are an ongoing thing as you learn to trust God in more and more areas of your life and you, your confidence becomes greater and greater in who he is. So believing in his love is what eventually releases the feelings. Confessing his goodness and faithfulness towards us and being thankful will lead you into his presence no matter how you feel. I've told you this many times. For a year God had me say on waking, Thank you, Father, that you love me. When I first started saying it, I didn't believe it. But as I confessed it, so I believed it. He then moved me into, I trust you. Everything in me turned upside down as I said these words. But as I continued to say them, the belief came. We start from the place that we don't finish at. And it isn't how we start that is important, but how we finish. So, we can feel all sorts of things, but they're wrong. We can feel as though God isn't with us, because we don't feel his presence. We can feel he's not pleased with us, no matter how much we do. We can feel with no contribution to make to the body, but that's not what the scripture says. So, what are we going to believe? Our feelings or what God says. Some people feel rejected when in reality no one is rejecting them. If a person lives in their feelings like this, their fear of being rejected will actually cause them to reject others first. Then they become isolated by their own feelings and the wrong belief that people will reject them. That's how wrong belief works. They move us from negative actions and behaviours which isolate us and then the enemy has lamb on the menu for lunch. Lamb sandwiches are served and it is you that are between the slices. Pass them in sauce please. We need a paradigm shift in our thinking to understand true love, God's love for us and in us and how we should love one another. Romans 13.8 says, Love for the day is near. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Romans 13.7-9 1 Peter 1.22 Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. 1 John 3.11 This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 1 John 3.23 And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Such love is not a feeling, beloved. This is the love of choice. 1 John 4, 7 Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 11 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 2 John 1.5 And now, dear lady, I am not writing to you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. God has to show us what our love is like, what it is and what it isn't, what it should and shouldn't be, before we understand enough to begin to make the choice to change. James 4, 1-6 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There's a sermon in there, asking with wrong motives. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we are meant to be learning to love people out of the nature of God that is within us not out of our own nature. We love others out of Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 You will never sustain loving someone out of your own nature. Sooner or later they will offend you or upset you and your love will disappear like the morning mist. This love has to be driven by the nature of God within. The exchanged life. His life for your life. His nature for your nature. Our society is rife with all kinds of prejudices and preferences. Love in our world always discriminates against something or somebody. We are called to be a counterculture. We are called to be salt and light, and we are called to suffer. Sometimes I think that the word suffer is like a curse word to Christians today. We would do anything to avoid suffering of any kind. This is the litmus test, beloved, of where our affections lie, in ourselves and our needs, or in meeting the needs of others. The essence of God's love is that it is outgoing. The essence of our love is that it is turned towards us and our needs. It is self-referential. Suffering, the Bible tells us, must come before glory. Romans 8.17 And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also 
be glorified with him. Conditional promise. Heirs, fellow heirs, if. Perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. Galatians 5.16 But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's impossible to walk in the Spirit unless we are willing to say no to ourselves. That, beloved, is the essence of the Christ life within us. Saying no to ourselves and no to living in our emotions and our feelings. The truth of it is God has made an arrangement with us but he didn't invite our input and we don't always like the terms so we pretend they're different. I love this extract from The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. I have used it before but it's worth hearing again. In this extract a girl named Jill is lost in a scary forest. She cries and cries and develops a terrible thirst. As she looks for water she happens upon a stream and eagerly runs towards it. But then she notices a lion is lying beside it. She stops in her tracks. The lion, knowing she is thirsty, invites her to come and drink. Uh, may I, uh, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for a convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to um, not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I don't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. C.S. Lewis puts these words into the mouth of Aslan the Christ figure as he talks to a frightened little girl. I make no promise. No promise concerning what? The lion makes no promise that Jill will not suffer. He will not promise her a life without suffering, but does invite her to drink the water she needs. He's good, but he isn't safe. You always know where you are with him. You just never know what he's going to do next. When the Bible speaks of suffering, it's not primarily talking about illness. It's talking about death to the self-centered life. Death to putting ourselves at the center of the universe, around which A.W. Tozer says, everything else must revolve. So, feelings. We aren't meant to be robots operating without feelings. 
feeling is okay. But just because I feel something does not mean it's God's will for me. I may not feel like doing something, but God says do it. So in obedience, guess what? I do it because there's no other stream. We can't base our faith on our feelings because we will feel saved one moment and not saved the next. Emotions, like every other part of our being, need to be sanctified. When we move out of our unsanctified emotions, we are prey to an up-and-down existence based more on whether we feel alright or not, or whether we like someone or not. Our happiness depends on what happens. We are affected mostly by what's going on around us. We're unstable and easily discouraged and depressed by circumstances, situations and people. Beloved, there is a higher place to live. Emotions won't go away, so we must learn to manage them, to have the rule over them and over ourselves. To become fully human is our goal, to live, walk and move as Jesus did, for as he is in this world, so are we. 1 John 4.17 Jesus was fully human. He felt every emotion we can feel. His identification with us was complete. So how did the way he lived his life differ from the way we live ours? The answer is that he lived his life from the inside out. He was not ruled by his emotions, but by his spirit within. He lived from the secret place of God's own heart. His life demonstrated nothing other than the spirit's own fruit. So our goal must be Christ-likeness. That's God's goal for us. And everything along the way is that we might know him and allow him to conform us to his character and nature, that we might be partakers of his glory. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, of whom he was aware and loved beforehand, he also destined from the beginning, foreordaining them, to be moulded into the image of his Son, and share inwardly his likeness, that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. We have all the equipment we need for this transformation. The only thing God asks of us is our cooperation with his Holy Spirit in the process. We are covered with Jesus' robe of righteousness while this development takes place. God has legislated for all our mistakes and failings. Everything is covered. We can freely move in the grace of God as we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us. Brilliant. What more could we ask? The truth is, without honestly facing ourselves, we cannot fully cooperate with the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. Unless we become sensitive to our own fallenness and the darkness we're yet in, facing fully our own responsibility and not blaming others, we are setting ourselves up to fall short of God's plan for us. 
His plan is a good plan, a plan to prosper us, not harm us. Another question for you. Are you able to relax in the knowledge that he means only good to you and move through you and move through your life enjoying his grace? I'll repeat the question. Are you able to relax in the knowledge that he means only good to you and move through your life enjoying his grace? If you are, you'll make swift progress. If you're not, you still have, as they say, three stripes against you. You will only cooperate to a certain extent, but beyond that, you'll be suspicious of God's motives and why he allows things in your life. There will be areas where you won't let go. There will be conflict and difficulty. And that's there because you won't win, beloved. <laughs> you won't win. If you find yourself in conflict, you're in conflict with the Holy Spirit. So a good idea is to roll over with your paws in the air. In the new year, I want us to start exploring the unconditional love of God for us and his plan for our lives and living an intentional lifestyle towards God. So we need to settle this issue that God means only good for us and surrender fully to him now or we won't be ready to move into all that he's holding out. So we need to settle up front that God's will for our life is a good, good will and it's a good plan and he loves us, he's for us. We really need to settle that. Because what we're going to meet next are roadblocks because there are giants in this land that we want to take. The giants in the land we're seeking to enter and possess and those giants are inside us. And they have names like look good, feel good, be right. Giants of stay in control or have a hidden agenda and personal advantage. Not to mention that Goliath remain undisturbed. If we don't identify these giants, we'll continue to live with them, unrecognized and undisturbed. And we will be like the children of Israel who failed to drive out the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and all the otherites from the land, who allowed them to stay and lead them astray, and thus they never possessed their land. Beloved, we must regain our own inner territory from the land of its captivity. And that responsibility is ours. God always acts redemptively towards us. He is always helping, healing, loving and leading. His love always has our best interests at heart. We can be absolutely confident that in every circumstance he's with us and for us, even if we're making the mother and father of mistakes at the time. He will discipline us as any father would and we must expect this as part of his ways with us but it's for our good not our harm. Hebrews 12 verse 5 says this in the Amplified and have you completely forgotten the divine word of appeal and encouragement in which you are reasoned with and addressed as sons? 
my son, do not think lightly or scorn to submit to the correction and discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage and give up and faint when you are reproved or corrected by him. So we need to make some quality decisions and do violence to ourselves by coming into agreement with the Holy Spirit when he points out something which needs to change in our lives. No more excusing ourselves and rationalising things, procrastinating and hanging about. Let's face it and get this show on the road. There is so much more God has for us. Love and self-control are bookends. They hold the rest of the fruit of the Spirit together in our lives. I've heard people say, I've got joy sorted in my life, now I'm working on love. This isn't the actual way it happens with us as far as I can see it. The fruit of the Spirit, like fruit on a tree, grow together. Although God may be concentrating on one particular fruit in your life, around which you will find all your trials will revolve. If he's working patience in you, everything right now will try your patience. And you cannot have more joy than you have peace. Pleasure is physical. Happiness, as I said before, depends on what happens. In other words, it's circumstantial. It depends largely on your current circumstances. But joy is a choice. And there you have body, soul and spirit described. Pleasure is physical. And like a nice hot bath. Happiness depends on what happens, but joy is your spirit, and that is a conscious choice to be joyful and to rejoice. So our life is one of constant choices, to bow to situations and circumstances in our lives, or to choose the higher path of seeing things from God's perspective. No one else can do this for us. We have to exercise our own wills and right to choose. I can't make those choices for you. I can only point you towards making the right choices. I have a piece to contribute to your growth, P-I-E-C-E, but it's only a piece. It's only a part of the whole. The responsibility of what you do with the piece I give you is yours. I disciple people from the peace that I have. I don't disciple peace people from the peace that I don't have. We are body, soul and spirit. The body is in touch with everything by its senses. Touch, taste, smell, see, hear. The soul, as we've seen before, is made up of the mind, which tells us what we think, our will and our emotions. Pleasure is physical, happiness is circumstantial, and joy is a choice. We choose to rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances, because this is the will of God for us. We do do that, don't we? Choose to rejoice in all circumstances. So, unless we're going to live a life ruled by our unsanctified emotions, We've somehow got to learn how to manage these emotions. Unless your will is firmly in God's hands, you will never ever get the victory which is yours in Christ. 
So you really need to think deeply about giving your will over to God. It's the first step in defining who you are and coming into your destiny. Your will must be placed firmly in God's hands and check frequently to see it hasn't jumped out. This beloved is the very essence of Christianity. One life to be lived, His through you. Sometimes I think my sole message is this, no longer two lives to be lived but one. We must decrease, he must increase. So the very first thing we must do is to give God our will in all of this or it will constantly be swinging towards what the feelings want to do. Life in the spirit is about displacement. Remember the lady with the escalator and the baggage? Two things cannot occupy the same place. Two bottoms can't sit on the same chair. Something has to go, someone has to move, and it's not possible to walk in the spirit unless we are willing to suffer and say no to our emotions and flesh life. If we are to walk the higher path, there is no place for carnality. For instance, I may be tempted to get angry. Incidentally, no one makes me angry. I allow myself to get angry because I lack the control to stop myself. I have a choice. You don't really enjoy being angry with people and being an unforgiveness and bitterness towards them. It makes you feel sick because it is actually a violence against the new nature which you have in Christ. You're shooting yourself in the foot every time you choose these negative emotions. And eventually it will have a physical outworking. So dividing between the soul and the spirit Hebrews 4:12 for the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit both joints and marrow able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart the word that is coming across to you now will be dividing piercing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, you will be feeling the difference. You will feel that knife going in, dividing between your soul and your spirit, but you get to choose which side you land up on. So definitions. Our soul is our mind, our emotions and our will. Our mind tells us what we think, not necessarily what God thinks. Our will tells us what we want, not necessarily what God wants. And our emotions tell us what we feel, not necessarily what God feels. The pivot of everything, beloved, is your will. Your will has no feelings. It does what it's told. So there has to be a deliberate surrender of this. Thy will, Father, be done. Thy will not mine. A deliberate surrender of your will for your life in order that Christ may be all and in all. And then a dividing between your soul and your spirit.
we must understand ourselves beloved we must know when what we think and feel and want is us when it's God and when it's of the devil you all know that Satan's only area of operation is your flesh your fallen nature he can't operate in your spirit man he's not going to come into the holy place where when the door opens it's God that he sees because the Holy Spirit is mingled with your human spirit and that's who he would come face to face with if he tries to mess in there so he seeks to use your flesh to stir it up and in the same way as the demonic seeks to live out its life through your flesh your physical body it will use your eyes your hands your mouth your mind your body to fulfill its purposes in exactly the same way as God wants to use your eyes your hands your mouth your mind your body to fulfill his purposes what the devil offers is counterfeit and you get to choose who is going to flow through you at any one time Satan tempts you to do bad things, think bad things and live bad lives. God's Spirit in you causes you to want to do good things, think good things and live good lives. The problem is we can resist either one. We can resist Satan or we can resist God. Prior to becoming a Christian and getting into the scriptures, I didn't know it was the devil tempting me to get angry, stay angry and talk about people. I didn't know it was the devil tempting me to get offended, stay offended and get resentful. I rehearsed conversations I was going to have with people and boy was I going to give them a piece of my mind. It was natural to me, I didn't know any other way. When I became a Christian, God gave me a choice. I think it was the most amazing day of my life when I saw I have been given choice. I could stay there or I could choose to live differently. Beloved, I'd have to be brain dead to stay in the old place. So it's impossible to walk in the spirit unless we are willing to suffer and say no to the flesh impossible and do not think that your flesh will not scream it will it will argue it will cajole it will plead just got to be firm with it like an unruly child you are not having it whatever it is let's define emotions then a strong feeling about somebody or something agitation or disturbance caused by strong feelings to excite to move out a complex usually strong response involving physiological changes such as preparation for action a state or agitation or disturbance feelings I'd rather live in peace myself
hence the title Emotions Who Needs Them. That beloved is the choice emotions, roller coaster or peace and rest. You get to choose every time. When I think about emotions they always equate with conflict. They always equate with a, a raised heartbeat and agitation. So where does the mind come in all this? Well the mind is the powerhouse. It helps the emotions to try to get what they want. It reasons, gives excuses or comes up with convincing arguments and rational thoughts. It persuades, it justifies and it justifies actions that the spirit will subsequently condemn. We can persuade ourselves, sweethearts, of anything. A good example is that a person may be in debt and shouldn't be spending money. They're well aware of this. They may have even committed to getting themselves out of debt. But they see something they like in a sale. Emotions rise. The must-have comes into play. They want it. The mind says you'll never get it at that price again. Or it would be foolish not to buy it. It's so cheap. Or going into super spiritual, God wants to bless me. This is a miracle of provision. He wants me to indulge myself. He's my daddy. How many times have I heard that one? Spiritual claptrap. We can talk ourselves into anything, particularly when the sales are on. My son's always exasperated when his wife says, when they've gone to the sales, we've saved such and such, so now we can have this. He never understands how a woman's mind works. He says we didn't have it in the first place, now she says we've saved it and so we can spend it. He can't follow the rationale. When emotions pulsate, the mind becomes deceived and conscience is denied. In other words, we are incapable of seeing the truth because emotion blinds us. The mind is deceived by the emotions and our conscience, which is the voice of God, has no place to speak. We can't hear it. We must begin to walk with integrity, not justification of our wrongdoings and disobedience. We must leave the shallows of being controlled by our soul and live the deeper life of the spirit. Question. Are you catering to your flesh? Are you serving it? Are you cooperating with providing and supplying what it is demanding? I have to tell you, if you are, the bill comes. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 in the message says this, Don't be misled. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants he'll harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. 
but the one who plants in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. And in the Amplified Bible it says it this way, Do not be deceived and deluded and misled. God will not allow himself to be sneered at, scorned, disdained or mocked by mere pretensions or professions or by his precepts being set aside. He inevitably deludes himself who attempts to delude God. For whatever a man sows, that and that only is what he will reap. For he who sows to his own flesh, lower nature, sensuality, will from the flesh reap decay and ruin and destruction. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You can't sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. The law is as unchangeable as the law of gravity. You cannot sow potatoes and reap rhubarb. Beloved, it is high time for us to start putting all we have learned into practice. It cannot be left as information. It must become revelation and flesh upon us. Choices must be made. So the bill comes. And we find we cannot sow to the flesh and reap to the spirit. When we use our credit card for things we can't pay for in the same month, we are spending tomorrow's prosperity today. And when tomorrow comes, you'll be broke. Wisdom says, do today what you will be happy with tomorrow. In other words, consider your ways. The unrenewed mind is just not helpful in all this, beloved. It is impossible to be a person of integrity and follow your emotions. If you are given to being impulsive in your thoughts and actions, set a watch upon yourself. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit and it has to be developed by our choices. Ecclesiastes 5, 5 and 6 says this, It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfil it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? We make a promise to help someone and then they upset us and we forget all about it. What's that all about? The world does that all the time. Psalm 25:21. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Integrity and uprightness are a protection for us. Don't say one thing and do another. Psalm 26, 1. Vindicate me, O God, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Don't seek your own vindication. Let the Lord do it for you. It is part of the life of faith. Trusting in Him without wavering. 
Let's look for a moment then at these three. The spiritual man, the natural man and the carnal man. We'll have some fun with these. So 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to chapter 3, verse 3 in the Amplified says this. And we are setting these truths forth in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit, combining and interpreting spiritual truths with spiritual language to those who possess the Holy Spirit. But the natural, non-spiritual man does not accept or welcome or admit into his heart the gifts and teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are folly meaningless nonsense to him and he is incapable of knowing them of progressively recognizing understanding and becoming better acquainted with them because they are spiritually discerned and estimated and appreciated but the spiritual man tries all things he examines investigates inquires into questions and discerns all things are you doing that yet is himself to be put on trial and judged by no man. He can read the meaning of everything, but no one can properly discern or appraise or get an insight into him. For who has known or understood the mind and counsels and purposes of the Lord, so as to guide and instruct him and give him knowledge? But we have the mind of Christ the Messiah, and do hold the thoughts, feelings and purposes of his heart. However, brethren, I could not talk to you as spiritual men, but as to non-spiritual men of the flesh, in whom the carnal nature predominates, as to mere infants in the new life in Christ, unable yet to talk, nepios, without speech. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet strong enough to be ready for it. But even yet you are not strong enough to be ready for it, for you are still unspiritual, having the nature of the flesh, under the control of ordinary impulses. For as long as there are envying and jealousy and wrangling and factions among you, are you not unspiritual and of the flesh, behaving yourselves after a human standard and like mere unchanged men?